Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. My title is What is Love? Plato's Philosophical Theology of the Body. In 1980, David Lodge, addressing the controversy precipitated 12 years earlier by the papal encyclical Humanae Vitae, wrote, the availability of effective contraception was the thin edge of a wedge of modern hedonism that had already turned Protestantism into a parody of itself and was now challenging the Roman Catholic ethos. The ban on artificial birth control, he continued, was the last fragile barrier holding back the Catholic community from joining the great collective pursuit of erotic fulfillment, increasingly obsessing the rest of Western society in the 1960s. Lodge was not unsympathetic to Humanae Vitae. Conservatives in the church, he wrote, who predicted that approval of contraception for married couples would inevitably lead sooner or later to a general relaxation of traditional moral standards and indirectly encourage promiscuity, marital infidelity, sexual experiment, and deviation of every kind, were essentially correct, and it was disingenuous of liberal Catholics to deny it. Still, Lodge thought, the conservatives had had unknowingly conceded defeat on the contraception issue through acceptance of non-artificial means of regulating birth. The church had already allowed that sexual pleasure pursued apart from reproduction could be a legitimate function of sexual intercourse. The erotic impulse was not alien to purely Christian love, agape. Lodge is not a theologian nor a church historian. He is a novelist and also a keen observer of psychological and social dynamics, and so also a keen observer. His Discursus on Humanae Vitae occupies nine pages in a chapter called How They Lost the Fear of Hell, in a novel that the British publisher called How Far Can You Go? Published in the United States under the title Souls and Bodies, it narrates a group of young people negotiating their social and spiritual relation to the church in the age of the sexual revolution. Later in the chapter, a couple of the characters attend a mass and find it, quote, the most meaningful liturgical event they had ever participated in. Now the mass was illicit by a suspended dissenting priest, but the fact that the characters experienced it as meaningful is telling and Lodge's description of it captures why. What they were all gathered together for was to assert the compatibility of eros and agape, to answer positively the question, what was love, what was conjugal love, and why did God make it so nice? The questions Lodge explored as a novelist are questions for Catholic theologians and for philosophers as well. Plato explored such questions in several dialogues, including the Phaedrus and the Lysis, Alcibiades and Protagoras, and especially in his most famous dialogue on love, the Symposium. In modern Catholic circles, 
Probably the most significant theorist of love is Carol Wojtyla, also known as Pope John Paul II, and now recognized as a saint. Among John Paul II's many contributions to Catholic thought, his so-called theology of the body, an account of marital love, appears the most original. Papal biographer George Weigel famously called it a theological time bomb set to go off with dramatic consequences sometime in the third millennium of the church. My plan is to compare Plato's philosophical dialogue and John Paul II's theological catechesis as oddly similar exercises in theological creativity and cultural courtship. First, I will describe some central elements of the theology of the body, emphasizing not only its key theses, but also the felt need that they were intended to supply. And then I will survey some of the key lessons of Plato's symposium, with special attention not only to its philosophical reasoning, but to its theological message. By proceeding in this order, we can gain some perspective on what is new and what is not in John Paul II's Reflections on Love, and we can come to appreciate that there is insight about human nature in Plato which deserves to be called a philosophical theology of the body. So this first main section is called Theology of the Body, Its Twofold Task. John Paul II's Theology of the Body develops reflections from Moitia's pre-papal writings about love and personhood, especially including books called Love and Responsibility and The Acting Person. It is primarily captured in a work originally composed in Polish and intended to be published as a book. After his election as Pope, John Paul II chose to deliver it in Italian in a series of catechetical lectures lasting over five years from early September 1979 to late November 1984. An English translation was first published in 1997 as Theology of the Body, Human Love in the Divine Plan, and a revised translation was published in 2006 under the title Man and Woman He Created Them, A Theology of the Body. The work was specifically designed to respond to the crisis that David Lodge described as precipitated by Humanae Vitae's teaching on contraception. The crisis had two related but distinct dimensions, one discursive on the level of logos and the other more poetic and on the level of ethos. Put another way, Humanae Vitae's teaching on sexual ethics needed to be shored up with theoretical argument, but that argument also needed to be integrated with a rhetorical re-enchantment of the church's language of sex and marriage. I will say a little bit more about that. Humanae Vitae was published in 1968, and it was very clear in its conclusions, but it was less clear in its reasoning. Many expected that to answer the question about whether artificial contraception could be licit in marriage, the church would have to settle a long-standing question about the sexual union in marriage. Does it have one function or two, procreation only or also sexual enjoyment? And if two, can one be sought without the other? Not only did it not exactly answer that question, it sidestepped it with new language, describing, quote, the inseparable connection established by God, which man in his own initiative may not break, between the unitive significance and the procreative significance, which are both inherent to the marriage act. So interpersonal communion, the unitive, and generation, the procreative, are not goals or extrinsic consequences, 
but intrinsic orientations, dimensions or meanings of the sexual act, and they are inseparably intertwined by God's intent. This profound position was asserted, but not exactly defended. Humanae Vitae did not so much supply an argument as suggest that argument wasn't even necessary. We believe, it said, that our contemporaries are particularly capable of seeing that this teaching is in harmony with human reason. So it left open a natural question. Why must not the unitive and procreative dimensions be separated? Even if it is God's will, or even if they are intrinsically related, some reasoning to that effect could be offered. And this points to the other challenge raised by Humanae Vitae, the rhetorical one. It is one thing to offer a sound theological argument. It is another for it to be presented winsomely. Even if the moral vision of Humanae Vitae is rationally defensible, what could persuade people that they might want to live according to such a moral vision? If the problem of persuasion arises in other circumstances, it especially arises in the context of a discussion of marriage, where the last thing one wants is to overanalyze and overintellectualize such a meaningful personal encounter with a set of lifeless abstract rules. If the church wants to propose a vision of marital happiness, the least it could do is make it sound enjoyable, delightful, even perhaps erotic. John Paul II's theology of the body addresses both of these challenges, the theoretical and the rhetorical. It supplies arguments, but it also supplies a persuasive frame, orienting the church's teaching as an appeal to noble desire. The rule not to separate the unitive and procreative dimensions of sex thus becomes a vision for communion. As Michael Waldstein describes, one can state the argument of the theology of the body in a single sentence, and this is his sentence. When the spousal meaning of the body is brought into play by men and women as an effective sign of grace, it needs to be spoken or re-read by them according to its full truth, which is inseparably unitive and procreative. Waldstein's distillation makes plain that both the dialectical and rhetorical force of the conclusion rests on a starting point, the spousal meaning of the body. As John Paul II describes it, the body has a spousal meaning because the human person is a creature that God willed for his own sake and that at the same time cannot fully find himself except through the gift of itself. That's uh, Gaudium et Space quoted in the Theology of the Body. The ideas here have inspired thousands of pages of commentary, but we can isolate key anthropological claims all seeking to enrich the idea of man as imago dei, our created dignity as the image of God. First, the imago dei is already complete in an individual human being's substantial personhood, but is deepened in relation to other persons. The story of the creation of man and woman includes both an original solitude in which Adam is whole but alone. The individual person is complete as a person already the image of God, but so constituted as to find himself oriented to seek and to give of self in further community. Second, the created human person is essentially physical. The body is not incidental to or separable from our nature, but in God's providential plan, it makes visible our spiritual and divine calling. Third, the human body thus has a language 
Embodied human acts have a meaning. They speak and receive truth in relation to other embodied human action and in relation to God. Fourth, the criterion of truth for the bodily language of conjugal life reflects its source in and participation in God's generosity, self-gift. And fifth, when this language of self-gift is spoken truthfully, that is, in accord with our bodily and spiritual integrity, marriage is a distinctive way of acting out the imago dei, an elevated participation in the divine life by which husband and wife can image God's interpersonal Trinitarian communion. As this short summary suggests, the phrases and assertions of the theology of the body can seem a peculiar mix of mysticism, existentialism, and personalist philosophy. But one goal is clear. By describing human beings this way, created to bear the image of God in our embodied natures and our embodied acts, John Paul II can affirm the dignity of the sexual urge. It is not a necessary evil or something inherently disordered, nor something natural from a merely, a merely biological standpoint. It is a desire natural to and informing the whole person and orienting one person to another as capable of complementing or completing one's personhood. Nor does the sexual urge orient persons to sexuality in the abstract or to pleasure-seeking alone, much less does it provide a source of social or metaphysical identity. Rather, by its nature, it orients one to another concrete human being. And it does this precisely because the urge, both physical and spiritual, depends on and is in the control of the embodied person available for responsible and ennobling use by, because distinct from, the will and the reason. This theological anthropology addresses, dialectically and rhetorically, the relationship between the procreative and unitive functions of sexual acts. The sexual urge does serve a biological function, but not only a biological function. The urge is also to seek unity, spiritual communion. Physical and spiritual fertility are intertwined in the persons and in their relation with God. The sexual urge, says John Paul, owes its objective importance to its connection with the divine work of creation. Attempts to satisfy the urge by seeking communion apart from its procreative power deny the unity of the person, damage the relationship of the spouses, and betray the imago dei. The procreative dimension turns out to be constitutive of the unitive, and the attempt to eliminate the former also frustrates the latter. Thus, we might summarize some of the key teachings about the ethics of love in John Paul II's theology of the body. We are made for communion with God and with others. Sexual love involves the whole person, body and soul. Choices with our bodies have a spiritual meaningfulness, and we have a responsibility to use and utter that language of embodied action truthfully. Sexual love draws us out of our egotistical desire for self-preservation or, possess or possession. Love is self-giving or sacrificial. And finally, truly generous or self-giving love is fruitful, spiritually and physically. These are the key insights by which the theology of the body addresses the dialectical and rhetorical challenge of humanae vitae. It provides an anthropological theory 
but just as important, it conveys that theory in poetic language with a compelling narrative. Both elements are present in proposing that the use of our bodies is a language, a way of communicating meaning, sharing in the divine language of creation. The dialectical and rhetorical elements of the teaching are each important, although most analysis has focused on evaluating the strength and sources of the dialectical dimension. So for instance, it is common for the theology of the body to be described as indebted to John Paul II's philosophical personalism and his training in phenomenology. That's the, the presentation of Christopher West, which is probably the most common. On the other hand, Father Thomas Petrie has shown that a strong case can be made for the grounding of theology of the body into mystic metaphysical anthropology. Um, Father Petrie has a book about theology of the body and Thomistic metaphysics. Neither account explains why the theology of the body has proven so inspiring for young people. And some theologians have even worried that the theology of the body is overly romantic. I have a colleague at Mount St. Mary's, theologian David McCarthy, who his fear is that the, the theology of the body will make marriage seem like a little bit too romanticized because um, it's hard work. To romanticize marriage seems to be a risk that John Paul II was willing to take. He wanted to re-enchant a theology of marital love in a sense to re-eroticize theology. Whether his theoretical sources are phenomenological method or scholastic metaphysics, his intent was not only to marshal an argument about the nature of marriage, but to re-fertilize the imaginative experience of marriage, to re-eroticize embodied love as a spiritual mode of knowing and being known. Now, if that sounds odd, that may be in part because we are not used to thinking of philosophy or theology as erotic. The pursuit of truth, as we typically know it, is academic or ascetic, not personal and interpersonal. And philosophy, philosophia, is friendship with the truth, not the erotic love of the truth, much less truth's erotic pursuit of us. If it is taken with the seriousness it deserves, George Weigel wrote, John Paul II's theology of the body may prove to be the decisive moment in exercising the Manichaean demon and its deprecation of human sexuality from Catholic moral theology. The Manichaean demon is sometimes thought to be a legacy of Greek thought, especially Plato. And John Paul II, in fact, criticized Plato for two reasons for seeing Eros as egotistical rather than generous, and for a dualism which denied the spiritual dimension of the human body. As we are about to see, and I am not the first to point out, such claims do not do justice to Plato. It will suffice to bring the testimony of Plato's symposium, which, even more thoroughly than John Paul II's theology of the body, sought to explore and embody the connection between theoretical argument and erotic enchantment. So the second main part of my talk is called Plato's Symposium Background. To understand Plato's Symposium, one must be aware of the sense in which it addresses love. The English word love can translate two words from Greek. On the one hand, there is philia, a more general kind of fellowship appropriate among family members and friends. The word philosophy, philosophia, implies love of wisdom in this sense. Philia is often translated as friendship, and Plato and Aristotle agree in defining it as desiring the good of the other, seeking as if it were your own good, someone else's good. Love in this sense orients one to common action, 
In the classic understanding of politics, philia is an essentially political notion. You can't have friendship or politics without the common good. The other Greek love word is eros. The connotation of eros is that of passion and power, an irrational force. This connotation survives in our English word erotic, which should imply a wider scope than, say, erotica. Eros would be better described as romantic than as essentially sexual, but it is no surprise that eros is the kind of love most easily associated with sexual desire. As anyone who has fallen in love knows, the experience is powerful and psychologically complex, and so eros includes not only the happy and sweet side of love, fascination, wonder, ecstatic bliss, but the bitter side as well. Eros can include the disorientation of losing one's reason, the painful frustration of dissatisfaction, the maddening, piercing disruption of one's emo emotional equilibrium. Given the irrational power and complex psychology of Eros, it is no accident that the Greeks regarded Eros, but not Philia, as a kind of god. And this is the occasion of Plato's Symposium, a dialogue about the nature of Eros. At the heart of the Symposium is an argument that Eros is essential to the true philosopher, that philosophia involves not only the friendly collaboration and common action of fellowship, but the irrational yearning for spiritual union sought in erotic desire. The philosopher, according to Plato, is not merely a friend of wisdom, but is truth's erotic lover and beloved. The symposium narrates a party, a kind of ritual banquet, in which those in attendance agree to take turns giving speeches in praise of Eros, the god or at least the godlike psychological force. It is through the variety of these speeches that an ever more complex picture of Eros emerges. But the dialogue is not dry theorizing. It explores the irrational element of Eros and does not shy away from the explicitly sexual. Now at this point, it is worth taking account of and acknowledging an awkwardness for modern audiences and probably also for ancient ones. For it is part of the design of the symposium that more than in any other dialogue, it confronts the thin edge of the wedge of Athenian hedonism, the difficult subject of Greek pederasty. I use the term pederasty as opposed to homosexuality or pedophilia, not only because it was their Greek term, but in order to draw attention to the ways in which the practice was accompanied by a clear set of social expectations. First, it was not between equals. Pederasty involves an older man in a position of authority and a younger boy or adolescent. Second, the desire was not supposed to be mutual. In the pederastic relationship, the older desires and enjoys, the younger is the object of desire and recipient of love, and it would be shameful for the receiver to reciprocate. This is one reason why we find a persistent distinction in the symposium between lover and beloved. Third, pederasty was supposed to be dignified as more than a sexual relationship. The relationship of lover and beloved was imagined to embody a social interplay of cultural status. It was justified as a pedagogical association where the older man was responsible for educating the younger and was in some sense driven to fulfill his noble responsibility to educate the younger by his attraction to him. I told you this would be awkward, right? But we have to get this out on the table. Fourth, 
through the cultural economy of this pedagogical relationship, although the cultural economy of this pedagogical relationship was in some sense traditional or at least customary within a particular class of people, it was a higher class thing, it was not uncontroversial. And the sexual dimension was even among members of the class not entirely free of shame. Talking about Greek aristocrats and their beloved boys seems to have been a bit like talking about British politicians and their mistresses. Even if everyone knows about it, it is not the kind of thing that is flaunted or taken pride in. Plato himself seems to have made efforts to distance himself from the common and evidently hypocritical attitude that pedagogical past pederasty was noble. In several different dialogues, the Phaedrus, the Republic, and the Laws, Plato speaks against the shameful practice, and there is an implicit argument against it in the Lysis. The symposium doesn't suggest any different position, but the circumstances indicate that Plato is attempting a different strategy to persuade or woo his readers away from debased behavior. Here, Plato seems to use a frank acknowledgment of the pederastic practices of privileged Athenians to present Socrates as departing from Athenian convention. Socrates ironically initiates Alcibiades into philosophical mysteries, not by sex, but by chastity. And this is not because Socrates was prudish, antisocial, or emotionally sterile. As we will see, Socrates teaches explicitly that lower forms of love must participate in and lead to higher ones, and that any rightly ordered love is inherently fertile and productive. But I am getting ahead of myself, and I will get to Socrates' wisdom about Eros soon enough. Let us first examine the dialogue as a whole and see what Plato might be trying to teach us with it. So the third main section of the talk is called Plato's Symposium, The Argument. The occasion of the dialogue is a party or banquet thrown in honor of Agathon, the tragic playwright, who has just won first prize for his latest play. Agathon proposes that the guests, who decide not to engage in the heavy bouts of drinking, which would have been regarded as appropriate for such an occasion, take turns offering speeches in praise of Eros. The various speeches about Eros thus occupy the bulk of the symposium, and I will summarize each of the individual speeches. First to speak is Phaedrus. His thesis is that love is a stimulant to virtue. In particular, he argues that love inspires the lover to self-sacrifice and instills courage. Because it inspires virtue, Phaedrus calls love the greatest god, without parents, that is, without any superior god. Because Phaedrus's praise of love is absolute and unqualified, his conception of love seems immature, and his praise exaggerated, trite, unwarranted, and overreaching. It is no surprise, then, that the next to speak, Pausanias, responds to Phaedrus's speech by insisting on a distinction between heavenly and common love, or noble and vulgar love. Pausanias contrasts the love of soul and virtue with the love of body and those lacking virtue, and so the need for love to be brought under law. It needs to be disciplined. At least as recognizing that Eros is not an unqualified good, this seems to be an advance on Phaedrus. It also introduces a recognition of the complexity in the feeling of love, and Pausanias acknowledges something like a need for chastity and fidelity. But his depiction still seems to lack a recognition of the complexity of the lover's acting, 
Pausanias' moral universe is just as simplistic as Phaedrus's. He makes it seem as if it is easy to regulate love and to choose the path of heavenly, noble, and righteous love as opposed to love's low and vulgar or polluted path. In one of the most talked about literary details in all of Plato's scholarship, the comic playwright Aristophanes is supposed to speak next, but he waves his turn because he has the hiccups. There have literally been whole chapters of books written on Aristophanes' hiccups in the symposium. So next to speak is Eryximachus, who is very proud of the fact that he is a doctor and who fittingly approaches love from a more naturalistic, utilitarian, and even technocratic perspective. Eryximachus praises love because the right kind of love can have all sorts of beneficial consequences, personal and social. Evaluating love with a physician's eye, he notices how love can improve the arts, culture, politics, and, of course, our physical well-being. It is fair to say that whatever the truth of his observations about the benefits of well-managed love, under Eryximachus's pragmatic and scientific analysis, Eros loses some of its romantic dimension, its existential power. Re-injecting pathos into the conversation, Aristophanes, now cured of his hiccups, speaks next. Aristophanes' speech is the most famous of all in the symposium and is sometimes interpreted and cited as if it describes Plato's own view, ignoring its place in the dialogue as a whole. If you've never read the symposium, there's still a chance that you've heard at least a summary of Aristophanes' speech. Aristophanes tells a compelling and memorable myth. Once upon a time, there were three kinds of four-legged and four-handed animals, male, female, and common, combining both male and female, and their power and amb ambition threatened the gods, who punished them by dividing them into two. We human beings are the halves of this former creature, nostalgic for wholeness, ever seeking to join ourselves to a complementary half. Thus, Aristophanes defines love by hypothesizing something about man's true nature. We are divided selves seeking to be whole, Love is a yearning to be reunited with our other halves, a yearning for completeness. After this tragic story from the comic playwright, next the tragic playwright Agathon, whose victory the banquet is celebrating, offers a comic story. Love, he says, is young, tender, supple, graceful, and dwells in beauty. Love is innocent, just, temperate, courageous, a wise poet. Love is best and most beautiful, cause of all other things, and especially of all social goods. In his encomium, praising Eros, Agathon seems to be attributing to Eros only and all good qualities, and indeed seems to be describing love in the terms that a lover would use to describe his beloved. After these five speeches, it is Socrates' turn. But to interrupt my summary for a moment, it should now be apparent that the symposium is rather unlike typical Socratic dialogues. It is not dialectical in the sense with which we are familiar from dialogues directed by Socrates' questions. The symposium addresses a question, what is eros, but it is not structured around an interrogation, a series of questions and answers, although there are two brief, more conventional Socratic interrogations as transitions between speeches, when Socrates questions Agathon and when Diotima questions Socrates. Yet there is a kind of dialectical structure in the series of speeches. 
Each speech is important to understand on its own, yet also in the perspective of its context in relation to other speeches. The symposium does not have, sorry, the symposium does have an overall dialectical trajectory in the sense that the speeches respond to each other and suggest a process of critique and development. By the time we get to Socrates' speech, we can see its significance in how it takes account of and moves beyond the ideas presented in previous speeches. And by the time we get to the final speech, by the very much unphilosophical Alcibiades, it has a meaning that could not have been appreciated, indeed, which Alcibiades himself could not have appreciated, without our having heard the previous speeches. In the symposium, Socrates has shown up to the celebration late. As was apparently often the case, he was lost in thought, and we are left to wonder by what was Socrates enchanted or entranced. And another surprise, Socrates uncharacteristically claims to have knowledge about the subject under consideration. His discourse on love proceeds in three stages. First, he offers ironic praise to Agathon for his eulogy or encomium and humbly claims that he cannot match it, but will only try to speak the truth. The implication is that while Agathon attributed to love all good and beautiful things, Socrates will attribute to it only the good and beautiful things appropriate to it. But Socrates doesn't only tease Agathon, he tries to teach him through dialectic. And so in the middle stage of Socrates' contribution, he questions Agathon and gets him to see that if love is a desire for the beautiful and the good, it cannot already possess or be the beautiful and the good. This lesson sets up the third and most important part of Socrates' lesson, where he shares his knowledge, which turns out not to be his knowledge, but only something received as a gift, inspired knowledge received from a prophetess, Diotima. The speech of Diotima, personally received by Socrates and recounted now at the banquet for his friends, is the high point of the dialogue. Diotima begins by correcting Socrates. Initially, Socrates, like Agathon, had confused love with the properties of the beloved. Further, Diotima explains, love is not a proper god, but a spirit which communicates between man and god. By means of eros, man as man can participate in the divine. God, she says, does not mingle with man, but all intercourse and conversations of gods with men, waking and sleeping, are through this realm, the realm of eros. The spiritual, this spiritual being is the offspring of poverty and plenty, having and not having, never full, never empty, hence its drive to seek fulfillment. Insofar as the philosopher is like that, between wisdom and ignorance, love is a philosopher. Further, although it is common to treat Platonic Eros as selfish or egotistical, Diotima says that Eros inspires sacrifice, suffering for the sake of the good. For what does it sacrifice? Love isn't simply appreciation of the good. It longs to possess the good forever and to be generative with the good. Love, says Diotima, is a breeding in the beautiful. Every human being is pregnant and desires to beget in body and in soul. Love is not simply for the beautiful, but for the begetting and birth of the beautiful. This generativeness, or begetting, is divine. Through it, 
we participate with the activity of the gods, and it is immortal, that is, it gives the begetter a share of immortality. After all, wanting to possess the good forever implies immortality, and as parents find a kind of immortality in their children, the soul can seek immortality through the begetting of virtues, which are more permanent than the children of those pregnant in body. If that doesn't already sound theological enough, the climax of Diotima's speech is a famous narration of love's ascent through loving first the beauty of particular bodies and speech to the common beauty of bodies, to the beauty of souls, and finally to beauty itself, which is properly divine, highest, most secret, and in which we are most fulfilled as we become capable of being dear to it. And here, if you'll allow me to read an extended passage, is Benjamin Jowett's translation of this uh, section of the symposium. This is Socrates reciting the speech of Diotima. He who has been instructed thus far in the things of love, and who has learned to see the beautiful in due order and succession, when he comes toward the end will suddenly perceive a nature of wondrous beauty, and this, Socrates, is the final cause of all our former, former toils, a nature which in the first place is everlasting, not growing and decaying or waxing and waning. Secondly, not fair in one point of view and foul in another or at one time in relation or at one place fair or another time and in relation another place foul, as if fair to some and foul to others or in the likeness of a face or hands or any other part of the bodily frame or any form of speech or knowledge or existing in any other being as for example in an animal or in heaven or in earth or in any other place but beauty absolute separate simple and everlasting which without diminution and without increase or any change is imparted to the ever-growing and perishing beauties of all other things. He who from these ascending under the influence of true love begins to perceive that beauty is not far from the end. And the true order of going or being led by another to the things of love is to begin from the beauties of earth and mount upwards for the sake of that other beauty, using these as steps only, and from one going on to two, and from two to all fair forms, and from fair forms to fair practices, and from fair practices to fair notions, until fair notions he arrives, from fair notions he arrives at the notion of absolute beauty, and at last knows what the essence of beauty is. This, my dear Socrates, said the stranger from Mantinea, is that life above all others which man should live in the contemplation of beauty absolute, a beauty which if you once beheld, you would see not to be after the measure of gold and garments and fair boys and youths whose presence now entrances you. And you and many a one would be content to live seeing them only and conversing with them without meat or drink, if that were possible. You only want to look at them and to be with them. But what if man had eyes to see the true beauty the divine beauty, I mean pure and dear and unalloyed, not clogged with the pollutions of mortality and all the colors and vanities of human life, thither looking and holding converse with the true beauty, simple and divine. Remember how, in that communion only, beholding beauty with the eye of the mind, 
he will be enabled to bring forth not images of beauty, but realities. For he has hold not of an image, but of a reality, and bringing forth and nourishing true virtue to become the friend of God and be immortal, if mortal man may. I don't know any other way around just sharing that. So it's a long quotation, but that's Plato at his most virtuosic. Overall, the wisdom of Diotima shares with, shared with Socrates absorbs and perfects the insights of the previous speakers, so that what emerges is an account of Eros that resonates with key points from John Paul II's theology of the body. The enthusiastic Phaedrus was right, that love can be an inspiration to noble action, but it is not always well-ordered and needs to be considered in light of the ultimate object of love. Pausanias correctly distinguishes noble from ignoble love, but his approach was too much about rules and inhumanly dualistic, with the soul as good and the body as bad. The doctor Eryximachus saw the need for an art to order love, but his art was totally unerotic, a technocratic pursuit of moderation or balance. Aristophanes, the storyteller, discerned that love seeks completion, union with other, but he made the longing a matter of fallenness, a punishment, and the desired union is egotistical, possessive, and not necessarily fertile. Agathon the host saw that love oriented one to ultimate ends, but he forgot that love was relational and must have an object, the beauty or goodness that is sought in love. Diotima's inspired wisdom captures all of this and more. For her, we are embodied and spiritual, and accordingly our love must be ordered so as not to betray either our physical or spiritual nature. The lover seeking the beloved is not the tragic result of divine punishment, but a natural pursuit of divinely invited fulfillment, ultimately ordered to union not only with another body, but with our true origin and end. This love is not selfish and anxious for possession, but generous, seeking to diffuse itself in fertility and to rest in eternity with shared and stable goods. I must come back to some of these points, but first, the symposium does not end with the sublime heights of Diotima's speech. There is one more speaker, the young man Alcibiades. An uninvited guest, he crashes the party late, already drunk. Totally uninhibited, he breaks the rules and speaks in lavish praise, not of Eros, but of Socrates. Alcibiades finds Socrates' speech enchanting and finds himself drawn to, convinced by, and even ashamed by Socrates. He tells a story of trying to court Socrates, but Socrates will not be seduced. Even on an occasion with close bodily proximity, Socrates showed affection for Alcibiades physically, but offered no sexual attention. Socrates' self-control drives Alcibiades to a kind of madness, a desire to acquire what Socrates has that is so lovable. Socrates' refusal of Alcibiades shows that Socrates' goal in their relationship was genuinely pedagogical and not sexual. The effect of Socrates' pedagogy, the fact that his chastity inspires the most passionate kind of desire in Alcibiades, shows how successful that strategy is. But the absurdity of the situation, Socrates, 
old and ugly, inspiring a frenzied erotic attraction in a young man who happened to be desired by many in Athens, also shows the power of Socrates' character. Socrates had explored, deeper than any of the previous thinkers, the character of the lover as one seeking what is good, so that the philosopher seeking cooperative generation in communion with the divine is the truest lover. Alcibiades considers the lover, Socrates, as his beloved. So with Alcibiades' speech serving as the coda to Socrates, the lover and the beloved are made the same. In short, with the addition of Alcibiades, what might at first seem like a kind of vulgar diversion after the theological heights of Diotima's speech, Plato actually complements and completes Socrates' vision of philosophy and its relationship to noble love. Socrates describes love as a philosopher. That is, the philosopher experiences the strongest and most upright love. In doing so, he makes the philosophic character itself desirable, something that is worthy of loving. Alcibiades, in loving Socrates, wants to become like Socrates. That is, he wants to be a philosopher. His frustration is his inability to do so, his inability to share in and possess the fruits of that life. So much for the symposium's narrative. At this point, I can make even more explicit what you may have already noticed already, that it is easy to find in Plato's dialogue lessons that resonate strongly with key claims of John Paul II's theology of the body. First, we are designed for love, body and soul, in a way that is ordered by and connects us to the divine. Second, love seeks not only union and completion, but generation. It wants to bear fruit. It has, by its very nature, a unitive and procreative dimension. And third, accordingly, we have a responsibility to make choices with our bodies that express these truths, which includes the cultivation of temperance and chastity as the means to our fulfillment, participating in the life of God. And this brings me to my conclusion. I began with David Lodge's novel from 1980, which described a cultural situation into which John Paul II's theology of the body was designed to speak. Another book published in 1980 by the literary journalist Gay Talese provides further insight into the ethos of the sexual revolution. Partly, that ethos was hedonistic. Talese writes, the sexual satisfaction of the body, pleasure, not procreation, was generally accepted now in the middle class as the primary purpose of coitus. The book he wrote that in is called Thy Neighbor's Wife, so he knew he was being controversial. But with an uncomfortably frank foray into the world of open marriages and spouse swapping, Talese described the way those practicing sexual transgression tried to dignify it in traditional humanistic and spiritual language. A wife's experiment cheating on her husband with his knowledge and consent is thus described as involving an extension and renewal of trust, freedom, truth-telling, and emotional intimacy. She even describes her act of adultery as a gift of loving trust between herself and her cuckolded husband. We can laugh at a hedonistic culture that attempts to portray adultery as an act of self-gift, 
perhaps much as Plato's Socrates could laugh at a culture that tried to dignify sexual exploitation of youth as some kind of noble service. On the other hand, we can notice, as apparently John Paul II and Plato both did, that even a corrupt culture reveals, if only hypocritically, a desire to pursue a dignified and ennobled life and a recognition that our actions speak a language that cannot escape the desire for truth. Degraded human nature still speaks with its bodies. Disordered eros can only be won over by ordered eros. And so it seems a legitimate evangelistic strategy to speak into such circumstances with a divinely inspired theology of the body. At the very end of his novel about young Catholics losing their faith in the face of the sexual revolution, David Lodge appended this paragraph. While I was writing this last chapter, Pope Paul VI died and Pope John Paul I was elected. Before I could type it up, Pope John Paul I had died and been succeeded by Pope John Paul II, the first non-Italian pope for 450 years. A Pole, a poet, a philosopher, a linguist, an athlete, a man of the people, a man of destiny, dramatically chosen, instantly popular, but theologically conservative. A changing church acclaims a pope who evidently thinks that change has gone far enough. What will happen now? All bets are void. The future is uncertain, but it will be interesting to watch. Reader, farewell. That's how David Lodge ended his novel. As we have seen, in a way, John Paul did not think change had gone far enough. His theological conservatism prompted a creative revisioning of Catholic teaching on sex and marriage, precisely to address the questions that Lodge articulated. What is love? What is conjugal love? Why did God make it so nice? As a philosopher, he theorized answers. But as a poet, linguist, man of the people, man of destiny, vicar of Christ, he sought to re-enchant these answers. In this, his strategy was like that of Plato's symposium, using the erotic power of language to awaken souls confused, disoriented, and degraded by disordered eros, to inspire them to a life of fruitful virtue. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.thomisticinstitute.org slash donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith, and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.